Okay, let's let's begin. I start with a quotation this evening. Again, this is this one is actually not a poem. It's from the Pali text. It's from the Pali scriptures. It's from a collection which is known as Numerical Discourses. Uh, the Pali texts are a very strange collection of uh, materials. They're organised in a very, very almost haphazard way, and these are organised just in terms of numbers. They're also very, very short and very pithy, and this is this particular one I want to explore with you this evening. Thus have I heard, nearly all suttas begin in that particular way. The end of the world can never be reached by walking. However, without having reached the end of the world, there is no release from suffering. I declare that it is in this fathom-long carcass, with its perceptions and thoughts, that there is a world, the origin of the world the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. It's a fairly revolutionary statement, certainly at the time that the Buddha made it. It's um, almost a Copernican revolution, in the sense of turning away from looking for metaphysical solutions to to life's problems. And what the Buddha is calling world here and reaching the end of the world. Reaching the end of the world in Indian metaphysics generally meant going to some kind of heaven, something outside of this world in general. Um, I don't think it's something we particularly believe in these days, although metaphysical beliefs are still pretty rife in our culture. When he's saying reaching the end of the world in this particular sutta, what he is indicating is reaching the end of sangsara, a word I want to spend a little bit of time. I briefly, over the last couple of nights, have given explanations of what sangsara is. But sangsara is effectively the circularity, and this is the way I've described it to you before, of our experience. In The nights that are following, we're going to look at how sangsara, from the Buddhist perspective, is brought into existence. I don't know whether you remember this, but I actually gave you a brief etymology of the word sangsara. Um, It always amuses me. Actually, we've made a perfume out of it in the West. I don't know if you've ever come across it called sangsara. Uh, uh, Sangsara is derived from terms in Pali and Sanskrit which mean to go round in circles. And in a lot of the traditional perspectives, this going round in circles literally means the round of birth, death and rebirth. Now this implies obviously the whole metaphysics of rebirth, reincarnation although there is actually a difference between those two words, which perhaps I'll explore at some point. However, it also means that which we're trapped within, the circularity, as you've said, of our experience that we're trapped within, and we find it very, very difficult to break free of. This is almost the circularity of habit, the way that experience is patterned and the way that we continue to imprint our experience with the same patterning, so that we return to doing the same things in very, very similar ways, psychologically and obviously physically as well. 
So the brain, if you like, has set up neural pathways down which we continue to run. Um, and we will continuously run down those particular pathways until they are changed. Now, rather, looking, rather than looking for a metaphysical solution to the problem of samsara, the Buddha is looking to ourselves. This is the whole meaning of the fathom-long carcass. Instead of looking outside of ourselves for a solution, the solution is to be found within. If we're looking for happiness, happiness so the Buddha is saying, will arise from within and not from without. Circumstances, as we've seen in the last couple of nights, I've talked about change and impermanence and the nature of the self a little bit. But external circumstances will continue to change. They are in flux. Very rarely, if ever, will we provide, find anything which lasts to any great degree, long enough to provide us with the happiness that we're requiring in life. Happiness is a funny word, and I'll say just a few words about that, because I think it's a very flabby word in English, and the Buddha really is effectively saying is the greatest happiness is contentment, being content, being equanimous, having equanimity in this world. But whatever we're looking for in terms of how we define our happiness, that happiness, the Buddha is saying, is arising only from within this body. It's no use looking outside for solutions. It's no use looking to others, for example, to make you happy. And I always think that's a tremendous burden we often put on close others, others who are close to us in saying, uh, almost as a demand, make me happy. You know, it's a hell of a demand, isn't it? It's placed on the other. You know, whether that's actually you know, cognitively realised or not, that we, in some sense, expect the other, in some ways, to provide the grounds of happiness for us. The Buddha says, is basically saying that happiness can only come from within. Just as the world of samsara is manufactured from within, so its opposite, nibbana, is also manufactured from within. Nibbana, let's get it clear for all of those who are fairly new to this, nibbana or nirvana is its, its most commonly known in its Sanskrit form in the West. Nirvana is not some metaphysical state. It's not some Buddhist heaven. Um, the Buddha on attaining awakening, attaining nirvana, and I'll say just a few words about that as well, and attaining nirvana does not pop off to Buddhist heaven um, at the moment he reaches it. He teaches for 45 years and dies somewhere around about the age of 80. He has a very, very long teaching career after his awakening. His initial instincts upon attaining awakening is not to teach. You know, he's saying this is so difficult and it's so unfathomable um, and it's going to be so difficult to put across, perhaps I ought to save myself the trouble of doing this. Uh, eventually is persuaded to teach. Both of these words, both sangsara and nirvana, and it just helps to know a little bit about Pali and Sanskrit. 
These are the languages in which we find early Buddhist texts, particularly Pali. In Pali, both of these words, sangsara and nirvana, or actually it's Pali form, nibbana, are verb forms. They're not places. It helps to know that, because actually, sangsara is something we are doing. Um, And nirvana ends up being something you can do. Uh, I won't say you are doing at the moment. (laughs) But you can do it. Um, the choice becomes, and I'm going to put this in English, in, in sort of anglicised versions, is do you want to sangsara or do you want to nirvana in this world? Yeah. Um, and in fact, a better way of putting it, rather than being in sangsara, we are sangsara-ing. Rather than being in nirvana or nibbana, it's better to say that we're nibbana-ing. They're very simple verb forms in the languages. So these are actual ways of being. And if nothing comes across to you tonight, that's the thing I would like to imprint on your minds, that both of these are ways of being. Sangsara itself is circular, as you've heard me say. It's going round in circles. It's often depicted, and we'll do this tomorrow night, as a circle consisting of 12 links which actually form sangsara. At its very hub, sangsara has roots. These roots are known as greed, aversion and delusion. These are the very roots which drive sangsara. Some of you have probably seen depictions. The Tibetans have lovely depictions of this, sort of iconographical depictions. Um, Lovely little paintings which are called tankas, uh, in which they have what's called the bhava chakra, the wheel of becoming which is a depiction of sangsara. Right at the very centre of it, you'll find a cock, a pig, and a snake. These are representations of greed, aversion, and delusion. Delusion being the pig. The snake being... um, Sorry. Delusion being the pig itself. The other two are issuing forth from the mouth of the pig, the snake and the cock. The cock represents craving and the, pea and the snake represents um, anger as well. So these are all issuing forth, or for aversion, issuing forth from the mouth of the pig. So delusion is absolutely the central concern of Buddhist practice, overcoming delusion, overcoming our delusory states. And those delusory states, of course, entail as not seeing the way things actually are. Actually not wanting to see the way things actually are. At the very fount of sangsaric activity is delusion or ignorance. And delusion or ignorance is to be heard, and I'll go into this a bit more tomorrow night, is to be heard in its very etymological sense in English. If you actually hear it in English properly, ignorance is ignorance. It's to ignore something. It's not just want of knowledge. It's not wanting to know about the way things actually are. So our state, according to the Buddha, is not actually being deprived, simply being deprived of the knowledge about the way things are, but not really wanting to know. So it's like 
going back to the first night when we talked about impermanence, it's not a case of that we don't know the facts of impermanence, it's we don't want to know about it. In general, we do not want to take it on board existentially. We do not want to take it on board in terms of what we do in life and the ways that we actually mould our lives and shape our lives in accordance with impermanence. So the very, very hub that drives all of the psychology of samsara is this greed, aversion and delusion. And out of it, as you trace it through in Buddhist psychology, every unwholesome, and this is the word that's used rather than bad, every unwholesome psychological state arises out of one of these three roots, out of greed, aversion and delusion. As a consequence of that, the overall feeling tone of samsaric life is one of dukkha. Dukkha being this word which is usually translated as suffering. The word I've been using as distress. Has many, many other connotations. I think I gave you the other night, just to remind you, the totality of unsatisfactory experience. Now that's a big one, isn't it? If you think about everything that you don't like that's happened to you in your life or is happening to you, that is dukkha. Yeah? As one, of, one teacher once said to me, Um, and I was very fortunate enough in my early days in the monasteries to study with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors and uh, he described he said Dukkha is not like being stabbed it's not a very sharp pain he said imagine this it's like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall (laughs) it's a very graphic image rubbing your arm against a brick wall well it's not terribly painful to start with (laughs) keep doing it as in sangsara going round in circles again and again and again and again it becomes more and more painful the more you engage in the activity so sangsara has this feeling tone dukkha itself is that characterization and that character as characteristic of all samsaric experience. In the sense, it's even there within joy. In the sense that joy is impermanent and that we know it is. So there's kind of a worm in the apple all the time. Our experience always has that little worm gnawing away at our apple, no matter how pleasant the apple might be at this present moment in time, because it changes. And so we talk very specifically about the dukkha of change. And this is one of the forms of dukkha. Now the Buddha himself is saying there are forms of dukkha that we can deal with and forms that we can't. Now before I get into that, I just want to give you a very brief etymology of the word dukkha because I think it's very illuminating. And when we just hear it as suffering, I don't think it really um, has that much purchase on our imaginations. And in fact, often I tend to think, if I said to a group like yourselves, you're all suffering. I sound very pessimistic, don't I? You're all suffering. You know, I think probably some of you say, well, I'm pretty bored with what you're saying. <laughs> or, you know, I'd rather be somewhere else at this present moment in time. 
or didn't like supper, <laughs> or whatever it might be. But none of it would really character, you know, none of it would really qualify as out and out blatant suffering. What it would qualify as is a lot of dissatisfaction. So one of the primary states that we find ourselves in life is in increasing states of dissatisfaction. Does this sound familiar? I mean, I mean, I'd really want to kind of get you to test it out in terms of your own experience. Even when you achieve what you really want to do, is it always that satisfactory? Or is there just, a, again, the hint of the worm in the apple that makes it not quite as satisfactory as you think? Is there the thought of change that might occur, that this might not last forever, this particular state? As soon as you get that arising, any of that, then that is dukkha. Dukkha is literally derived in Pali and Sanskrit from two little words, du, which is really easy to describe, and ka. Ka means space. It literally means, it's derived from a word in Sanskrit which is akasha, which actually means space, any kind of space. Du generally means dirty unpleasant, painful. And so literally, if you compound the two words together, dukkha means a dirty space or a a very unpleasant space. And I think given that the way we tend to use space, particularly in modern English, you know, I don't feel in the right space. You know, I think it has a very good connotation because it actually shows you that actually it's a very unpleasant place to be in, is in the state of dukkha, in the state of dissatisfaction. It was also used to refer in very ancient Sanskrit to a hole in a wheel into which an axle fitted. And the hole in the wheel was fit, filled with dirt and grime and grit and grease. And it went round and round and round. Um, and that is, again, a quality of dukkha, that it doesn't run smoothly. It's very, and sangsara doesn't run smoothly. That wheel of sangsara is very dirty and very gritty and there's a lot of friction there you know, in, that, in that way of being, in that sangsaric way of being. Sangsara also is composed of psychological states. Many of you will have heard me say this before, those who've attended teachings I've given before. It's composed usually, and again, it's in the nicely done in the iconography, of six states, which you can supposedly be reborn into. You know, these are the ways you can be reborn. You can be reborn. Let me give you all of the states, first of all. You can be reborn as a god. That's the highest. That is the highest state that you can be born into in Sangsara. You can be born as a sort of demigod. Um, what's called actually called an asura. It's very rarely translated. It doesn't have a very good translation. It literally means those the sun doesn't shine on in Sanskrit. It's derived from asurya, surya being the sun. You can be reborn as a human. You can be reborn as, well, this is not so pleasant, as a hungry ghost. Yeah. I'll explain what these are in a minute. You can be reborn as an animal and you can be reborn as a hell realm. And according to traditional Buddhist cosmology, those are the six realms of rebirth. There's lots and lots of different godlike states you can inhabit, 33 of them altogether. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, they're very precise. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll find that actually Buddhists are kind of number fetishists as you go through. <laughs> there are four of these and three of those and 12 of these. and you know, There are all these lists all over the place. Um, but joking aside, these are the six realms according to Buddhist cosmology you can be reborn into. Now, the gods themselves represent egotism. They represent um, a kind of have everything, don't want to do anything, reach the pinnacle of what I'm doing, um, but ultimately, of course, because it's sangsara, they will find rebirth again. Now, the only reason they get to sangsara, according to the early texts, is because they, in previous lives, have engaged in lots and lots of good actions, beneficial actions, and have stored up, if you like, a good karmic bank balance. Um, and they get to their little place in their godlike heavens because of their karmic bank balance. When the karmic bank balance runs out because they've never added anything else to it, because they haven't done anything either good or bad, uh, they fall into lower realms. And I always cite this because I love this little bit, which is actually in one of the Tibetan texts, it says, when a god is likely to fall out of the god realm and take up lower rebirth because that's the only way they can go they start to smell and nobody wants to talk to them (laughs) 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 sounds very human actually (laughs) so they fall into a lower realm because the only way when you reach if you like the pinnacle is down Um, and this is what goes on with the gods the asuras these who the sun doesn't shine on actually want to be like the gods, but they haven't quite got there. I always used to joke about these as being the upwardly mobile. (laughs) These are the ones that want to get to the top, but they haven't quite got there yet, but they're striving terribly hard. And there's a lovely, again, little bit of iconography in the Tibetan illustrations of this, where you have a wish-fulfilling tree, which has its roots in the realm of the Asuras, in these kind of would-be gods, and all of its fruits in the realm of the gods. You know, so the gods get all the fruits and the, um, and the poor underlaborers, if you like, are working hard to get to where the fruits are. Then there is the human realm. I'll leave that right to the very end. You have the realm of hungry ghosts. Well, the realm of hungry ghosts, and these are, again, very graphically described. Um, hungry ghosts are supposed to have tiny little pinhole mouths, little scraggy necks, enormous bellies, and a raging thirst and appetite. So it's basically about desire that can never be satisfied, or craving that can never be satisfied. And it says that each morsel of food and water they put in the mouths causes them immense suffering because of this. Then you have the animal realm, which is apart from the human realm, is the one we probably only recognise directly. The animal realm in ancient Buddhist literature is a realm of immense persecution. I don't think things have changed that much, actually. Uh, But it's also a realm of blind instinct and the surrender to blind instinct in the sense of procreation, eating, defecation, urination. All of the basic facets of life are there and they're simply instinctual. Uh, They're simply blind instinct, that is all. Now, you have to remember, this is a very ancient view, so I think our treatment of animals might not have improved, but our understanding of them might have improved a little bit. Then you have the hell realm. 
at the bottom. Usually in the depictions, you have the, hell, the, the godlike realms at the top and the hell realms at the bottom. In the hell realms, what you have is Yama, who's the god of death. And Yama, of the god of de- who's the god of death, holds up a mirror. And everybody who's punished within hell punishes themselves by what they see in the mirror. Yeah. Nobody does any judging. Each person judges themselves by what they see in the mirror. Now, when I first came across this, and I haven't included the human realm, I want to just say a little bit about the human. The human realm in these terms is the realm of the possibility, not the actuality, of wisdom and compassion. It's the possibility of the development of that. It's the most... It's the realm that's most conducive to the development of those two extremely important Buddhist virtues, wisdom and compassion. Now, when I first came across this, um, I said to the teacher I was studying with, these are psychological types, aren't they? And I know people like that. (laughs) I said very cleverly, you know, I know a person who's in the hell realm, and I know a person who's in the God realm. Oh, I've seen those animal people running around, you know, just satisfying their blind instincts and so on and so forth. And I kind of said this very smugly to the teacher, I said. And I said, is that the way it is? Are they psychological realms? And he said, no, that's a picture of your mind on one day. <laughs> but what was interesting, and this is why I always cite this story. I've given, said this so many times in this room. But the reason why I always cite this is because he turned it around and then said, how often are you human in a day? How often are you actualizing the potentiality? for wisdom and compassion in your lives. Because so much of our time can be spent following blind instincts, giving ourselves hell, being like the gods, striving for all those worldly possessions and the things that the gods have got. You know, just abandonment to craving that can never, ever, ever be satisfied. So all of this is actually a picture of our minds. It's a very crude one. It's not meant to be highly nuanced. But it gives us an idea that what out of these roots of greed, aversion and delusion, what primarily emerges is states which are not conducive primarily to the development of wisdom and compassion. Now one of the things that first ever got me motivated to study Buddhism and practice Buddhism was the realisation in many senses that the Buddha didn't represent something divine, supernatural, didn't represent a god-like figure, but represented the absolute epitome of what it meant to really fulfil one's human potential. The figure of the Buddha is not, certainly in the early text, it becomes much different as the history of Buddhism advances, but certainly in the early text, the Buddha is not a figure who is divine or anything else. Um, he disclaims all of these things which are presented to him. At one particular stage, he's even asked, you know, are you omniscient? And the Buddha goes, certainly not. I know a lot of things, but I'm not omniscient. It's a bit like the life of Brian, because they all come along afterwards and go, yeah, he's omniscient! <laughs> you know, after he's disclaimed this. <clears throat> 
So what we get is a picture, I think, of somebody who is extremely um, well-rounded as a human being in the sense of having perfected the virtues of what it could mean to be human in this world. For me, and I can only speak for myself here, this was tremendously inspirational, not seeing the Buddha as a kind of metaphysical divine figure outside of our ordinary existence. He had to deal with life's problems, with sangsaric problems, just as much as we have to. Okay, the circumstances are very different because it's India two and a half thousand years ago, um, but basically the human problems have remained the same. Psychologically, we have pretty well remained the same. So sangsara of which he is talking about is something that, according to the tradition, the Buddha liberates himself from. This, as I've tried to make very clear to you, is not the idea of moving out to some other realm. It's very clear, I think, from these early texts, that this, where we are now, where we sit, is sangsara and it is nirvana. It depends on how you inhabit it. It depends how you are. So the teaching that the Buddha gives is entirely practical. Even the teaching to which some of you might have thought, oh, this is a bit kind of philosophical last night on the teaching of not-self, it's an entirely practical teaching. Because ultimately, and I'll again expound on this as we go through, ultimately about how we are in this world. When we're full of self, we are sangsaring, sangsaring in extremis, to the great extreme. When we're nirvanaing, that self drops out of the picture. It doesn't mean that the Buddha, in a sense, doesn't have a personality. Of course it does. Actually, in the Pali text, it's very clear that the Buddha has a personality. He makes fun of things. He makes jokes. You know, never come across any English translations, unfortunately. But he does actually make jokes. Um, unfortunately, some of the jokes are taken too literally by those who come afterwards, <laughs> as if they're true. <laughs> you know, um, there's one particular instance, I'll give this as an instance for those who are interested in looking this up. There is an instance in something called the Diganaka, which is the Long Discourses of the Buddha. You can probably find it in the library. In the Long Discourses of the Buddha, there's a, there's a myth of creation. It's, it's, it's found in a sutta called the Aganya Sutta. And basically what this myth of creation is, is the Buddha taking the mickey out of myths of creation, um, and particularly Hindu ones. It's an enormous send-up. But unfortunately, all of those who came later took it as being absolutely true, that this is the way Buddhists saw creation coming into being. Um, And it's very, very funny. I won't go into it anymore, but uh, it's worth looking at, because the Buddha does have a rounded personality. So when we talk about nirvanaing, it's not the loss of a personality. It's not the loss of the ability to make jokes. What it is, is the founding of oneself in three virtues. So all of the psychology of nirvanaing arise out of three primary virtues, just as the unwholesome psychology of sangsara arise out of three roots as well. Now, as you can probably guess or gather, these are going to be the complete antithesis of the roots that drive sangsaric existence. 
If the roots that drive sangsaric existence are greed, aversion and delusion, um, and I think we see those in all too greater evidence in the ordinary world, greed, aversion and delusion, we see them not only individually, we see them corporately. We see them driving um, political institutions. So it's written large, it's written very, very large in the ordinary world, the world that the Buddha is talking about. But the world here is the world that is created by people's psychology. It's not the world in the sense of being kind of physical stuff. It's the world as we perceive it. Nirvanaing this instance of freedom, what the Buddha speaks about, of being free, of being free from sangsara, being free from the dukkha, which is associated with sangsara, is driven by the roots of generosity, kindness or compassion, and ultimately understanding or insight. I use that last word deliberately because obviously it connects with what we're doing this week in terms of mindfulness and the way of insight. Insight is what it is about. Now, usually that is translated as wisdom. Um, It's not a very good translation for all sorts of reasons, which I won't go into. But it's primarily a penetrating insight and understanding about the way things are. Remember I said the other night that the Buddha was one who was woken up. He's not enlightened. I really tried to make that quite clear. Enlightenment occurred in the 18th century. Yeah. (laughs) at the end of the 18th century, basically. Um, And it was associated very much with Western movements. The Buddha gains awakening. He really, really wakes up. He wakes up to what's called the suchness of things, as they are. So it's about the movement away from fantasies. Fantasies are very much associated with samsaric existence. Wanting things to be different. That sense of dissatisfaction is usually driven by a sense of, albeit very mild, aversion. Not quite getting the way things the way we want them. Even if we get that prized possession, being with the person we want to be, the new house, the new job, you know, all of the stuff that we can you know, that we can acquire and want and actually are often in some ways um, conditioned to want in our societies, when we get them, there is still a hollowness often to them, a sense of it not being quite right. Now, how is sangsaric behaviour generated? This is the important thing. Well, for a start off, the Buddha says it just is. He doesn't go into great, long, well, there was a creation time, a bit like Adam and Eve, where there was the original sin, and then we give rise to where we are now. There's nothing like that to be found in Buddhist texts. The way it is generated, in some senses, is through our wishing to substantiate ourselves somehow in this world, to make ourselves whole, to make ourselves much more substantial in this world where that comes from the Buddha never says he just says that's the way we find ourselves in other words it seems to be pointless to go and trace it trace it and trace it back because this is how we find ourselves this is 
what we do. We find ourselves almost from the moment of gaining consciousness wanting something, craving something, desiring something. In the ennobling truths, what you would know as the noble truths, in the four ennobling truths, the first truth that is offered, and the reason why I call them ennobling is because it's a far better translation for a start-off, is actually the inquiry into why we suffer, why we experience dissatisfaction, is an ennobling inquiry. You know, we're ennobled in the, in, the, in the actual course of our inquiry into how this comes about. The second of the ennobling truths is that there is a cause to the dukkha that we find ourselves enmeshed in. And the most proximate cause, the most immediate cause of that dukkha that we find ourselves enmeshed in is craving. You know, so craving is identified as the most immediate thing that we, can ident- you know, that we can actually see, we can glimpse. Now again, as I kind of reminded you a couple of nights ago, this is not meant to be taken as a catechism. You know, I believe that there is suffering. I believe that there is a cause of suffering. It's nothing like that. It's meant to instill in you and instigate in you a sense of wanting to inquire into your own conditions. So in other words, when you hear dukkha, when you hear there is a cause, to then look at it in terms of your own life. To see whether this sense of dissatisfaction that we often experience, result out of craving actually never finding an end, never finding satisfaction, never something we can wholly rest in and say, oh, I've landed, I've got it. I'm really whole now. I really feel fulfilled here. Now, if you can find that, fine. (laughs) I think what the Buddha is saying is that most of us don't. And in fact, that's why we gather in centres like this and do retreats and you know, look at the kinds of things that I'm suggesting that you look at, is we do that because we feel somehow that life isn't giving us quite what we want, that the proffered goals in contemporary life don't necessarily add to fulfilment, they actually add to frustration much of the time. It's very interesting, and I think, again, I mentioned this the other night, that exponentially, as wealth goes up in the Western world, depression goes up with it. Depression often comes as a result of the lack of satisfaction by the things which are supposed to provide a satisfaction in this world. And this was one of the fundamental things that the Buddha was really trying to teach him. Don't look for happiness in things that cannot provide you with happiness. Don't expect them. Don't place a demand, an unrealistic demand, on either the things of the world, the material things, of which you know, we just abound in the Western world, don't we? I mean, we really have all of these goodies which are supposed to make you much, much happier. Yes, I think they give us pleasure. That's very, very different. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. But don't, just ex- but don't expect them to give you something which they cannot ever give you, which is the sense of fulfilment, the sense of happiness. Yes, they will give you entertainment. They will give you enjoyment. They will give you pleasure. 
but you can't keep amusing yourselves to death. You know, because, in a sense, at death there will be that sense of lack of fulfilment, of a life not well lived, if that is all we're doing. That's not to say that we can't take pleasure in these things, but to do it repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly because we can't find real happiness is, in a sense, to create great suffering in our lives, great despair, ultimately, perhaps in old age and towards death. So the Buddha is really strongly saying, remember I gave you the, also the graphic image, it was probably on the first night of the, or the very first night of the, of the story of the butcher and the dog. The dog being thrown a bone, which has absolutely no nutrition on it whatsoever. But because it doesn't, in a sense, know any better, it keeps chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing, trying to get some sense of nutrition from this. Now, I don't think it takes a great leap of the imagination to see, actually, that's a lot of our condition. That's the condition we find ourselves in. Doing things which we know in some ways, perhaps in the heart, somewhere in the head as well, that we know don't actually give us what we want. But we keep doing them again and again and again and again. Now, from the Buddha's perspective, he would never, of course, use words like this, from um, the Buddha's perspective, we all have suffer from some kind of compulsive neurotic disorder in the sense that we keep doing things again and again and again and again um, that we don't actually feel are going to give us anything in the end, but we don't know what else to do. And this is why I want to take the moral, any kind of moralistic sting that might have seemed to be apparent in what I've been saying out of this, because it's not. There's not a sort of moral, moral sting in this. What the Buddha is saying, in a way, we're doing our best, in the sense that we don't know how to do anything different. Now, the spiritual path that the Buddha is offering, the path of meditation, the path of study, the path of realisation, is a path which is a path which is leading to fulfilment, leading to something which will fulfil us, which will sustain us, will give us the nutrition that we're looking for. By paying moment-to-moment attention to, for example, just our fleeting experiences as we do in meditational experience, we begin to perceive the truth, if you like. And I use that inverted commas because it's only your truth, It's not a truth in such. Perhaps the truth of the impermanence of all phenomena, of all of the phenomena we encounter, certainly within our samsaric world. All of it is fleeting, all of it is evanescent, all of it is like bubbles, like froth that disappears. However, we're caught up in repeated experience. We're caught up in a repeated experience which in some sense, is trying to solidify the bubbles of our experience. To identify them, to create ourselves out of them, to create some form of identity and identification out of them. Now, what the Buddha is ultimately, of course, trying to say is this will just lead to progressive dissatisfaction, to greater and greater disillusionment. Perhaps 
in many ways, the manifestations of depression in the modern world are an outcome of this. I mean, I'll leave you to judge that. I wouldn't want to say, but it seems to me that there is a link there. That there is a link between um, the lack of satisfaction and a kind of depressive stance that we take up with a world that appears when it doesn't seem to fulfill what we want as devoid and stripped of any real meaning for us. And of course, one of the things that human beings are, are meaning-garnering animals. We love to gather meaning in life. And to feel fulfilled is to have some sense of purpose or meaning in life. Now, one of the things we're doing, of course, in insight meditation is paying much closer attention to what I call detail. To the little things. To, you know, think about when we start off the meditation, just paying some attention to the body. Just those little things, like the touch of clothing on skin. The feeling of heat and cold. Now, these are not earth-shattering <coughs> But they bring a richness to life and a richness into your experience which if we are not aware of them is simply not present. In a way it is present but it's not present to this consciousness perceiving. So we're learning to pay attention. We're learning in some senses to attentively gather meaning as we move through life. It's not just about this but this is certainly one important facet of it that we're learning to gather meaning, to accumulate it, and thereby, if you like, turn a world, a samsaric world, which can often be extremely monochrome, you know, one, it's just black and white, into something which is very colourful and very, very dynamic, and something that we live in a much more vibrant way. So, for any of those who think that sort of Buddhist thought and practice is a withdrawal from life... It's the complete opposite. It's a bringing to life, actually, of facets of undisclosed meaning, which are there. Now, we look for meaning in the bigger things. We look for it in security. We look for it in, perhaps, job, job satisfaction, roles, material things. There's often this big confusion I mentioned between something like having and being. We are what we have. Yeah. That we are what we do. Yes. These are all confusions that go on, um, particularly in the contemporary world, where we confuse our sense of being with the kind of roles and the things that we have. And therefore we're looking for meaning in those big things, in those big things. And of course, ultimately, often they fail us. More often than not, they fail us in providing the satisfaction we're looking for. Because even if you get your perfect job, it changes. Somebody comes along and says, okay, we're going to cut the department or whatever it is and cut costs and your job gets squeezed into something it was never before. Um, Even if you get your perfect role in life, that will change. Being a parent, children grow up and leave home. All this sort of thing. So all of these roles and all of these securities that we try to create for ourselves are built in a way on shifting sand, on the flux of experience. So why fight life's difficulties? Relax into them. 
This is the message of the Buddha. Why fight them? Relax into them. And in relaxing into life's difficulties, of which there are many, none of us are going to avoid the difficulties of life. The Buddha's message is not a panacea, for example, for avoiding illness or physical pain or any of these things. These will come to us when the conditions are right, you know, and I trip over a log and break my leg, I'm going to have pain. There is no doubt about it, you know, when the conditions are in place. What I can deal with, of course, is my mental approach to that accident, to that situation. Just as I can deal with my mental approach to all of life's difficulties... Added to that, that we can begin to perceive richness in things where we don't perceive richness. Moving back, as, um, as one of the teachers says, you know, Sri Lankan teacher says, you know, Vipassana is bringing the eyes of a child to what you experience, and thereby experiencing a sense of wonder. And of course, that is one of the things that gets written out in a lot of experience as we get older I'm not saying entirely because we can sometimes be brought up short by beauty by something quite astonishing be taken into another culture and experience something very different which brings you up short from this boring monochrome world we're suddenly aware again albeit briefly so this is about also and I'll try and finish off on this This is about the clarifying, the purification of perception. Beginning to perceive without baggage, without all your past experience. Again, relating to something I said, I can't remember, it certainly wasn't last night, probably the previous night, was that perhaps being rather cynical about it, we could say, do we ever really experience anything anew? Because all experience is past experience. Every time I perceive something, I'm bringing a whole train of thought. Do we, for example, ever hear a piece of music anew? Whenever I listen to something like Desert Island Discs on the radio, I always hear people choosing their music through association. As if it's only through the past that you experience something. Now, this is about the purification of perception. The quelling of, if you like, the craving for something that cannot be satisfied. And one of the things I want to then go on to examine as we go through is this psychopathology of desire or craving that most of us are caught up into. Now, lest this all sound extremely pessimistic, because it's not meant to, This is about actually diagnosing the problem. Because once we diagnose properly the problem, then we begin to see roots out of it. We can see alternatives. I mean, I've suggested some this evening already. We're engaged in it, in the meditation practices we're actually involved in. But the Buddha is very clear about this, of actually getting the diagnosis right. Before we can start to really move on, we must see where we are, holy. We must see, in a way, almost the crazy behaviour we engage in. And see the psychological wellsprings of that behaviour. 
So I think I'll finish off there and again throw it open to see if there are any questions or comments. They don't have to be questions, by the way. It can be comments. And they're going to also be about questions wider than what we've just talked about this evening, relating to even other things that have been said or about Buddhist practice in general. So don't feel you have to be confined by what I've said this evening. Yep. And I have a bit of a difficulty with his feminine life. <laughs> Since I, can, I, I feel that that is what <clears throat> part of being supremely human mm-hmm. is to participate in the family. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wonder what you thought about that. I think that. Um, if you actually look at India two and a half thousand years ago, what he was doing was not uncommon. In fact, it was more common than uncommon. It still is part of the case. And one has to realise, of course, that there are very, very different social systems and ways of looking at things. And you're talking about India two and a half thousand years ago, where the idea of the renunciate's life, of moving into a renunciate's life, was a very, very common way of behaving. even as a father. I mean, that predated the Buddha by quite some time, that whole system of renunciation, even with families. And that still goes on to this day in India. You'll find that even um, families um, are often left behind by people that will go into renunciate orders. So it's part of the socio-historical condition, I would say, of the Buddha's background. Well, there is, I mean... Well, no, what I, what I actually said was, I think he, he fulfilled the human potentiality. That doesn't mean that he doesn't make mistakes on the way. You know, and all of us do. I mean, there are stories, I mean, there are only snippets of the Buddha's biography within the original texts. And one of the snippets, as you get, is, is the reconciliation of... Um, Rahula, who's the Buddha's son, with the Buddha at a much later stage in his life. The biographies that you get, and this is worth pointing out, um, even that renunciation story, we don't know whether it's true for a start off, because the biography, the only biography that we have, the first biography of the Buddha was written 500 years after he died. Even the most common name that you'll be familiar with of him being called Siddhartha or Siddhartha, actually is first used 500 years after his death. It's never once used in Pali texts, that name. It's a bit of a policy statement because Siddhartha means one who's overcome. <laughs> yeah, but that's true of any sort of influential person in history, isn't it? Well, certainly in, in that period of history. We have the we have the well, the earliest strata of the text is, is the Pali texts, mm-hmm. and the Pali texts again, um, a large part of them are probably very very accurate. There are certainly 
interpolations, there are certainly material that's brought in that's much later. You can tell simply by the style of the different forms of parley that are used uh, within the text. So clearly, like all historical documents, they've been tampered with, but there is a core there, I think, which shows... And in fact, I'll try and bring a piece along tomorrow night, something I translated, which I think shows the Buddha's very humanness in very speaking from a very personal point of view um, that gives this sense of him being a real human being. Part of the problem when you look at any Indian text is it's full of hyperbole because that's the way Indian texts are written. They're written very differently to the way texts are written in the West. You know, so they're full of hyperbole, they're full of... Um, allegory, they're full of all sorts of literary devices which you often don't find in Western texts of a similar nature. Um, but within it, and this is what I do find revealing, there are core snippets of the Buddha's biography. Now, any redactor of texts that really wanted to give a really polished version of it would have cut them out. Anybody who was editing those texts. You know, what they did was they left them all in. And there's absolutely, for some of this um, material, for some of these biographical snippets, there's absolutely no reason for them to be in. You know, it doesn't add anything to the teaching that's being given often. Um, but they're just left in. And they're very tantalising, these little snippets of information that you get. Now, you can, and somebody who was actually here last week, uh, has worked this into a much more, uh, I think, coherent biography of um, uh, the Buddha, and that's Stephen Batchelor. And he's got a book coming out, I think, next year on this, on the kind of reworking of the Buddha's story, which actually gives a much more plausible historical case uh, for how he lived. (laughs) I ought to get commission, because it's telling me (laughs) Stephen's books. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, in a sense we choose or we opt for sangsara simply because that's all we know. It's the familiar. And so there is a degree of not knowing to it as well. However, and this is the big problem, is sometimes when we know, we still, in a sense, don't change. Well, I think this is a moot point. And sometimes I think we do know, but we don't know. It's a very strange thing. Like, for example, I'll give you a very good example of this. All of you, certainly any of you who've been coming to Buddhist teachings for any length of time, will have heard people sit up here in this similar sort of position, saying to you, everything is impermanent. All things are impermanent. Everything is changing. Yet, somehow, we do know that. You've certainly got all the information, and if you look around, you can see these things. But we still, in some senses, don't live it. So it, it makes an impact on one level, and I think that's purely at a sort of intellectual level, in the sense that we cognize it intellectually, but we don't necessarily embody it. And that's the big thing, and that's why the practice, in a sense, is so lengthy. Why... For example, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Sutta on the establishing of mindfulness 
is so detailed is it's about you actually getting it. You know, in the sense that I think what you mean by understanding it. You know, actually getting it. You know, because it says actually really the, if you like, the, the realisation that we're trying to come to through Vipassana, through Satipatthana techniques and everything else is the realisation of dukkha, impermanence and not-self. Now, in the course of these evenings, I will explain all of those, and I've done pretty well most of them already. Um, but it still doesn't mean that we, in a sense, know it. You will have heard it, and you will have something to work with, but you will not, in a sense, have deeply, deeply understood it on what I call almost a visceral level, you know, on a very, very embodied level. Yeah. And that's the difference. So it's marking the difference in a way from an intellectual understanding to a deeply embodied emotional understanding of it. And that's, that's the big change. And that's what I call getting it. Yes? I hope you um, express what I'm trying to say, which is um, this difficulty of embodying what you're saying, really making, take, make it real in your own life, mm. this transformation that, um, that, is, um, that it requires. Of all modern psychological therapies, mm. I mean, recognize that we have a circularity in our patterns that we have yeah. imprints in our brain. The, uh, marvelous, I mean, they're just reaffirming what the Buddha said 2,500 years ago. Mm. But it requires a long um, um, relationship with therapists or involvement in a, in, in a therapy to be able to break those very deep-rooted patterns. Yeah. Now, my, my, my worry, uh, uh, well, I would say my, not my doubt or my preoccupation is that meditation what you're proposing is that meditation is really the way forward mm-hmm. uh, for one to be able to embody all this? No, I would say meditation is a way forward. Um, I wouldn't make it the definite article in the sense of the way forward because even within Buddhist practice, meditation is part of a tripartite structure of three aspects. And generally the Buddhist path is laid out in three ways. And I'll just give you one very brief version of it, which is that initially one has to hear the teaching. One has to hear it and, in some senses, absorb it. The second part, which is actually a very important part, and I think Westerners, for the most part, generally feel quite resistant to this because of our backgrounds, which are quite intellectual, is we have to really think about it. We have to really, really go over it again and again and again and again. And actually, even hearing the teaching, you have to hear it again and again and again and again. I used to feel very embarrassed one time, one point in my life about sitting up here saying similar things again and again and again. And then I suddenly realised people actually hadn't heard it you know, after a while. And that you have to keep saying the same thing again and again and again for it to make any impact. And so... The, the last part actually is then to then go and try to cultivate it in meditation. So it's actually part of a strategy rather than meditation. If you just sit down and just meditate, then everything's going to be okay. Actually, it's not. One big thing that gets missed out actually in a lot of approaches and something I'm very keen on and probably will talk about even during this week is ethics. Leading an ethical life. You know, trying to um, lead a moral, ethical way, or, or 
have an ethical way of being in this world. You know, because actually, again, if you go back to even early texts, somebody like Buddha Gosa, who's a very famous character in the history of Buddhism, <laughs> says, you know, without having a moral ethical foundation, meditation is useless. You know, you've actually got to look at the way that you live a lot of the time. Um, so it's, it's a many, many... Um, in terms of Buddhist practice, meditation is part of a strategy. It's a very, very important part of the strategy, but it's not the only one. And I think that's worth... You know, I'm glad you asked the question, because I think it's worth pointing that out. Because I think there is a misconception by sitting down on a cushion and meditating, everything is going to be okay if you do it long enough. And that's not the case. Yes. Well, it's, it's, usually, it's usually laid out as sila, which is usually ethics or morals, samadhi, which is certain types of practices, which are meditation practices, and panya, which is wisdom or understanding that arises. That's another tripartite way of understanding it. What's wrong with emotions? It's not often... I don't know whether it's alluded to in Buddhism or not, and I've missed it, or it's not alluded to very much, but I think, I, think, I think one of the things, and I think you're possibly right, there is a certain dryness to the way often Buddhist thought is presented in the sense that it seems to have very much a negative look at emotions. Unfortunately, of course, it's because it's looking primarily at negative emotions. You know, the emotions that I was talking about last night that cut you off from others. Actually, there are whole practices which are devoted to actually cultivating wholesome emotions. One of those is kindness. That's a really, really important one. Um, If I just mention it very briefly, because I'm kind of running out of time, but if you take something like the Brahma Viharas, something some of you might be familiar with, the Brahma Viharas, the, 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 um, the practice of kindness, metta, loving kindness, the practice of compassion, the practice of really of appreciative joy. You know, that's a wonderful emotion. Appreciating others' joy, you know, as well as your own. And then equanimity as well. So you start off with something which actually is, is opening up. The ground base is kindness. And this is why I really emphasize it. The ground is kindness out of which all of the others grow. Compassion grows out of kindness, out of love. 
out of in, in Indian terms, maitri, which actually means a, a particular type of love that you bring to others and to your situation and to yourself. Compassion is compassion for the sufferings of others. Now that can get pretty overwhelming, can't it? Because there's an awful lot out there. There's an awful lot of pain that's going on, you know, in individuals and collectively and everything else. And that can be really overwhelming. And then it's balanced by appreciating also the joys that they have in their lives. Because even sometimes in the most desperate lives, there's fleeting moments of joy, and it's really like appreciating that joy that's there too. And then to come to an an equanimous understanding of this is the way that things are. They're a mixture of suffering and and joy. This is life. And I think when you begin to start to really unfold all of this and see it in terms of your own life, that actually that's our lives too. You know? And if we can bring, begin to bring those qualities to bear on our own lives, like, you know, okay, you can be pretty miserable because you feel like you're, you know, you're, you're in distress a lot or suffering a lot or in pain or whatever it is. But often there's moments of joy and to really, really appreciate those. There are moments of kindness. And it's really building those in. And so the, the path itself, the path of meditation, shouldn't be dry. It should be lubricated. Let's put it that way. It's a lovely word, lubricated. Lubricated by those things. It should be you know, going along on this lovely lubrication of love and compassion and joy and equanimity. Yeah, and equanimity actually could be seen as a synonym for nirvana too. I try. I th- if I get time, I'll try and say more about this because I think it's important. Because otherwise, often Buddhism looks like a rather sort of dry fish. You know, it's out of water. Um, it sort of takes this distance look at life and and is very detached. And I'm sure we've all come across that word. Buddhists are detached. That's a completely wrong word. You know, because Buddhism speaks out against attachment, doesn't mean you have to become detached. You know, it's, it's simply because we operate in languages that have antonyms and synonyms, doesn't it? You know, so if you have the one, if you, if you disavow one, such as attachment, therefore I must be detached. Well, actually, no. The correct, really, understanding of that in Buddhist terms is instead of attachment, what you have is correct engagement. So it's actually instead of moving away from life, you move into life but with a refocused engagement with it. One that isn't clinging and cloying and desperately trying to hold on to things. And so actually is able to deal with life much more effectively. Yeah, just one more and then we must finish. I will just add a quote, if I may. Please do. I think that's right. It's very interesting you mentioned Spinoza because when I was doing some early work in university, I turned Spinoza into a Theravadan Buddhist because <laughs> his thought goes along very closely with Buddhism. <laughs> okay, I think we ought to uh, call this to a halt.